glad that you are here today, and as Larry reminded me, and to you who are online, a greeting to you as well. I like that both of you are on there. So that was a joke. <laughs> it's a vast audience out there, and when I speak of those in the great balcony, it's those that are online. Anyway, just glad that everyone's here. It's a beautiful day, and I, don't you like this? It's a marvelous time of the year as we see things transitioning, and it's just a great time to be alive. Let's talk a little bit about trust this morning. Really, we're talking about faith because faith that trusts is vital to us, and that's where we go with this this morning. I call this lesson, Naaman Pentecost, Paul and Grace. But grace is not a person. That's not some lady I threw in there. We're talking about the subject of grace. Because we really need to think about how well we trust God, what we trust in God. I want to turn to a passage in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We'll read just verses 7 through 10 in that section because I, I think it gets the gist of what we want to say, and it really is the point of involving Paul within the context of this lesson this morning. So if you want to read along with me as well. And lest, he said, in the midst of what he says, of all the great things that have happened in his vision and, and all of this, and he said, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Probably one of the most powerful statements that Paul makes when he talks about our need and our trust in God as he uses himself as an example. But we've heard it from time to time. Someone will say to us, just trust me. Just trust me. You know, how many times have you, we heard these words? How many times have we even offered these words? Sometimes we put some sort of connection to it, like, you know, cross my heart and hope to die. So forth. Just trust me in this. How many times did we really believe when somebody said that? How much or how far did we really go in our belief? How many times did we believe without any question? So if we're really willing to be truly and fully honest, how many times have we questioned God? Now, you don't want to say it out loud. You don't want to say we're a Sunday morning crowd here. and We want to, we want to present the idea that we trust God with absolute, complete, perfect faith in everything but how many times have you wondered how many times have you wondered does God really hear that is God really going to respond to that does God really care about that that's our human side isn't it you don't have to admit it out loud but you know it's stirring in your brain I know that for a fact as well because frankly we we want to claim that we trust God even when our actions don't show that we trust God I'm not talking about 
the foolishness of stepping in front of a moving car expecting God to save you from it and say, well, see there, he didn't do it. Well, you only do that one time, kind of like that bug on the windshield. You only do it one time. But faith is not foolishness. There is a practical difference. And when I talk about trusting God, I'm not talking about him immediately removing you from a point of danger by some miraculous sense. But do you truly trust God for his word, for his promises, and what lies ahead? Even Christians sometimes say, well, I hope, I, I hope. Are you going to go to heaven? Well, I, I hope so. And there's a question in mind about it. And maybe that says more about the individual than it says about God in any way. But think about this. When an apparent failure, a fault, a, a setback has taken place, we might be inclined to say, I guess I just didn't have enough faith. I just didn't believe strongly enough. But that kind of thinking leads to the idea that there is some sort of pressure-related instrument in the view of God, that if we just squeeze it hard enough and we raise the meter high enough, then we will, we will have shown God that we have that much faith, kind of like that thermometer on the wall. If the pressure gets there enough or the temperature is enough, it pushes the mercury or whatever is in there up far enough. We don't do mercury anymore, do we? Okay, we'll do something else. But we push it hard enough, squeeze the tube hard enough, push it out far enough. If we do that, then we've had enough faith. We think that, if, that faith is some sort of sheer force of will or some miraculous power that will change failure into success and immediately. Faith is not some sort of increase in pressure like blood pressure. Faith is about trust. It is about trust that engages good action. Otherwise, as James reminds us, faith is dead, useless. Chapter 2 and verse 17. So this message is about sharpening, determining, grabbing hold of our faith. We don't want to be like the Israelites who failed to go into the promised land because they just didn't believe they could overcome those gigantic people and their great walled cities. We don't want to be like King Saul who didn't fulfill what God gave him to do and lost his relationship to God and ultimately for his lineage, their place on the throne. We also don't want to be like the Christians in Rome who thought they could just do whatever they wanted to do and that God by his grace would just set it straight. When we talk about faith, when we talk about trust, when we talk about grace, we're talking about one and the same thing. We're talking about things that are tied together. We're talking about our relationship to God. So let me give you three stories, three quick stories of trust. The first one is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. In the first 14 verses, we're introduced to a man by the name of Naaman. He's a leader, a captain of the army. He's a powerful man. He has everything going in his life. The Assyrians are a very powerful people at the time. And he is a leader of an army. And it goes through this and it points out what a, a powerful and engaged man he is. And it says, but he had a leprosy. He had this scourge on him. 
He had a serious problem that given enough time would ultimately take his life. And when you're dealing with something like that, and some of you here have dealt not with leprosy so much, but with very serious issues, very serious things, and you're, you wondered, were you going to make it through? Was that going to be the end of things for you? We asked the question, what would not be paid? What would he, what would Naaman not pay to be rid of this debilitating and tragic disease? What would he pay? What would he not do? What would he not say? Ain't no mountain high enough. And he'd do it. That's what he would do. But what happened in Naaman's household through a series of events, he's got an Israelite slave, a young girl who is an Israelite slave from one of their ventures over Israel. He's brought home this slave who belongs to his, now his wife. And this young girl is a devoted servant in the household. That's a good thought, maybe a lesson right there in itself. But this young girl is a servant in the household, and she tells her mistress, said, oh, that he would go back and he would find this prophet in Israel and talk about Elisha and go to him and that he could be rid of his leprosy there. It gets to him. Well, he realized, I'm going to go to Israel. He gets the word from his king. He goes to Israel. He goes to the king of Israel. He brings the letters from his king, goes to the king of Israel, king of Israel saying, I can't cure leprosy. Well, the word gets out to Elisha. Elisha sends word to the king who's distressed about it all and says, send him to me. And so through the course of events, Naaman makes his way to the house of Elisha, the prophet follow all that and at the gate of the house of Elisha a servant is sent out and that servant says to Naaman you know this story don't you the servant is sent out and he says the word is you go down here to the Jordan River you dip in it seven times and you'll be rid of your leprosy now tell me that makes sense Tell me that makes sense. Tell me there's some magic in the water. Tell me there's something powerful in that muddy old Jordan River. Tell me that. That's what Naaman is saying. I'm not going to do that. I'd go home. They're far cleaner, nicer, more beautiful rivers at home. I'm not going to do that. He should have come out here. He should have waved his hand over the spot. He should have touched me. He should have blessed me in some way, anointed me with oil or something like that. He should have done that, but he didn't do it. I'm going home. But the man is still most fortunate. And some of those with him, those who are serving him, say to him, if he'd ask you to do something great, if he'd ask you to climb a mountain, if he'd ask you to swim a river, if he'd ask you to pay huge amounts of money, and he'd brought money, he'd brought clothing, he'd brought things to offer, wouldn't you have done it? Of course he would he just asked you to go dip in the river. His servants convince him over his hesitancy, over his anger, and he dips in the river seven times. And when he comes up the seventh time, the leprosy is gone. He set aside his self-dependency, and he learned, leaned upon the instructions from God, and he was cleansed. He could have taken other actions, but he would not have received the same result. You have to come to that point of accepting trust and leave, leave it out there for the power of God. The second story is the story of the people we find in Acts chapter 2. Most of them remain nameless to us. 
when Peter and the others had gathered together on that Pentecost and those cloven tongues of fire and so forth and the great wind had happened and all those people that were around for the Pentecost celebration began to, began to gather around saying, what in the world is going on over in that corner? Let's go over there and see what's going on. And people began to gather in that place. Peter, along with the others, stands up and begins to share a message with them. He talks about their history. He talks about David. He talks about prophecy. He talks about the fulfillment of it in Jesus, and he ultimately comes down to tell them this man whom they have crucified, who they put to death, this Jesus whom you crucified, God, God has. God has raised him up. God has made him Lord. God has made him Christ the Savior. And he got their attention. Seven weeks had passed. The memory and the stain of the cross was not far from the people. And while we don't have statements of testimony or even the names of the people, we can readily assume that there were many who were still thinking about it, still even grieving over what had happened to Jesus and how that they had not been able to stop it or they had not stood in the way of it, how they had allowed these things to happen. There were people still in wonder about all of that. And when Peter and the others began to preach this message, and when it came down to that point, they had that question in mind. For Peter's message had cut them to the heart. They knew. And the great question was there. For the guilt was assigned, and they needed a remedy. What shall we do? Please tell us, what shall we do? And in the words of Peter, he said, Repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say that he exhorted them with many other words, saving, telling them, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You read within the context of it, it says 3,000 of them were touched by that. These Pentecostians, if I can call them that, the people gathered on that Pentecost, these Israelites who were gathered together there, they wanted, they wanted to be rid of their guilt, and their question says, We don't know how. And Peter gave it to them. They wanted to be rid of their guilt. And what he told them may not have made a whole lot of sense in some regard. Oh, they understood uh, ritual cleansings, ritual things like that, dipping in water. They understood what baptism was. They understood the idea of it. They understood dipping in water and the idea of ceremonial washings and cleansings. They understood that. And so when he offered to them the idea of baptism, they understood the idea of being dipped in water and being brought out of that water. And while it was a ceremony and while it was while it was not obviously connected, it was directly connected. They wanted to be rid of their guilt, and Peter gave them the remedy, and the response is larger and life-changing. They were different. Not just wet, they were different when they came out of the water that day. Their lives changed. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And you read on through the next few verses, and it reminds us they spent time together caring about one another, giving to one another, serving one another, and studying in God's Word. 
in the company of others. They wanted to be rid of their guilt, and they found an answer, and the answer was trusting God. And then go back to our reading at the beginning of worship, or the beginning of the lesson. Go back to the reading there. Because Paul had a festering problem. When I say it was a festering problem, it may literally have been a festering problem. We don't know exactly what his problem was. Some have thought maybe it had something to do with his eyes because some other things that were written. Maybe it was some other physical ailment that he had. Some, uh, somewhere I read they thought he might have had epilepsy and it would cause him great problems within that. I don't know what his problem was. He doesn't spell it out for us and it really doesn't matter, but that it was a burden and a problem to him. And as he writes in this account in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, and he writes about the events that have transpired in his life, and there were blessings in his life of which he could have, if he wanted to, he could boast about them and the greatness of the things that had happened for him and to him. But he also, he says, I also have a troubling reminder. We might say he had more than one troubling reminder, for as he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13 and then in verse 15 he refers to himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and even the chief or the leader of all sinners. But in this case it's that physical thorn in the flesh as he describes it here. It had been on him. He had thought about it. It had affected him. He prayed that it would be removed. Wouldn't you? Who wouldn't? Lord, please. We prayed about things that are far less than something that really inhibits our lives in a dramatic way, haven't we? We prayed about things that are small. We prayed about things that are great as well. This one was a burden to him. Lord, three times he had prayed. But notice, notice in the response, notice where he found his strength and comfort. It was found in what made him trust in the Lord. He found that maybe he needed that to increase his trust in the Lord. As we look at these stories, as we look at these three stories, there is a common link to each of them and to many others we could have thrown in. The link is this. It is in walking by faith and not by sight, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. It is faith that trusts outside of the normal circumstances, that reaches deeper, flies higher, and goes farther. So the challenge to you and me is this, as we come down to this, it is about finding that faith, finding your faith, finding your trust. For far too often we tend to believe that in things where it is easy and within the bounds of reason, we want God to fit within the scope of what we want him to be, where we want him to be, and how we want him to be, and we don't want to reach out and beyond. So much of our faith is handed to us through our heritage and through our culture. So much of what we believe is limited by those things because that's what dad believed or mom believed. That's what grandma had. That's what my friends around me believe. So therefore, that's what I believe. That's what the culture accepts in my belief. And so our faith is so often limited. But people, we need to understand that a borrowed faith can only take us so far. 
If our faith is just what's handed to us, if our faith is just what's bound by what's been given to us by someone else, if our faith is just what's been instilled in someone else, our faith can only take us so far before doubt invades and limits our scope and even we curtail because we see the weakness in the people that handed it to us. I hope that makes sense to you. Because humans are fallible. And there's no doubt faith handed to us in heritage. Paul writes to Timothy, you know, the faith that was in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and, and I believe is also in you. From one generation to another, that's a good thing. But if it's limited to what is handed to us, that's not our faith. Because faith is about reaching where we have not been, where we have not necessarily reasoned, because that's what takes the trust I'm talking about. So, my friends, we ask the question, where or what is your trust? Because even the faith that is common to all believers must be personally, do you understand what I'm saying? Personally owned. Not just collectively, but personally owned. You never know. You're never going to know how delicious a thing tastes just by hearing somebody else tell about it or seeing its picture in a magazine. You'll never know how delicious it tastes until you taste it yourself. Even faith that is common, that we share together, that like precious faith that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1, has to be individually held within you. Secondly, that trusting faith must push us beyond where we are. Not just where we were, but where we are. It must push us forward from the present to even more. If we become satisfied with where we are and seek nothing more and nothing further, we miss faith and we've set faith aside as if it's something you put in the cookie jar and you just let it sit there. And after a while, those cookies don't taste very good if they're just sitting there and ungrowing and unmoving. Now, that doesn't work for cookies, so the analogy kind of went out the window, partly. I hope you understand, but you understand what I'm saying. It must push us beyond where we are. The evidence of things not yet seen, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and that evidence of things not, and add the word yet, not yet seen, because it is a forward motion in that regard. There are things that we've never seen and never done. Well, I've never been to heaven. And I'm going there. Aren't you? It doesn't matter if others have been there, just that you and I have not. It's up to you and it's individual. And faith, it must identify that unsatisfied need within you. Naaman went looking for a healing. The Pentecostians went looking for the remedy to their guilt. 
Paul wanted his thorn in the flesh removed and needed that trust that was there. It must identify that unsatisfied need in you. As with Paul's thorn that could not be removed, it helps us to see the power of our dependency, our need to trust in God. Jesus tried to tell the people that when he'd healed that blind man in John chapter 9. He said, if, if you were blind, then now you'd be able to see. But because you say we see, you just remain blind. They didn't have an unsatisfied need. Not that they recognized. Trusting faith must identify the unsatisfied need in you to push you forward. And finally, it must change who you are. Trusting faith must change who you are as an individual and within your community as well. You become as somebody of a different value than you were before. You become somebody of a different voice than you were before. You become somebody of a different understanding than you were before. You become somebody of a different mission than you were before. It changes who you are individually as you see yourself and recognize the work of God within you. Yes, we are encompassed with all those who share a similar journey of faith, Hebrews 12 and verse 1. And the key within this is the idea of the journey. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. That's the encouragement that is there. We need to examine where our faith, our trust really is and what it actually is doing in our lives. You know, we may teach a child to ride a bicycle. And we may even, for a time, limit the ability to fail. We'll put on the training wheels We'll grab hold of the seat of that bicycle or the back of the child and we'll run down the road. We'll run next to him every step of the way as fast as we can run. Yes, maybe that's needed for a time. But the reality is that child will never learn to ride that bicycle until you let go of the seat. And the training wheels are gone. We can't spend our Christian lives with our training wheels on. We've got to take them off and ride through the wind. That's the trusting faith that Naaman needed, that those on Pentecost needed, and that Paul came to understand. In trusting God.